Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Kay, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge of the Class of 2005. Here on the Providence College Podcast, we bring you interesting stories from the Friar family. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Dr. Anderson Clary Jr., a member of the class of 1969 and one of two recipients of Providence College's MLK Vision Award this year. Reverend Clary was a basketball player at Providence College where he studied secondary education and later became the first black high school teacher in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. He earned his doctorate in sacred scripture from Keenan Theological Seminary in Hampton, Virginia, and taught at institutions such as Harvard Divinity School, Richmond, Virginia Seminary, and Hampton University. Clary served as pastor of Queen Street Baptist Church in Hampton for more than two decades. He was also chair of the Virginia Governor's Commission on National and Community Service, as well as held several elected offices, such as commissioner of the 8th District in the city of Hampton. Reverend Clary, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your award. You're welcome, and thank you. So, if we could start at the beginning, you grew up in Hampton Roads, Virginia. What brought you to Providence College? I was recruited. Very interesting story. My home Newport News family doctor uh, was a graduate of the class of 41, Dr. Gregory Carter, and uh, he's from Chapachet, Rhode Island, and uh, he is the nephew, along with his brother, June Carter, who's a dentist, God rest both of their souls, uh, and they were the nephews of the Narragansett Indians chief uh, Ferris Dove and Princess Red Wing. And how he got to Newport News, I don't know, but he was our, our doctor. And I got injured playing high school basketball, and I came to him, and he treated me, and he said, how would you like to see my alma mater? I had several offers. I was a senior. And he said, uh, it's up there in the north. It's cold. There are no girls in the school. He said, and you got to get them books. And so I said, okay. So he took me up. Uh, the year was 65, and Providence was ranked number one in the country, Sports Illustrated, and they were 19-0. and 0. He took me up to see the game we met at Catholic University House of Studies, the Dominican House of Studies, and we got on a bus and we went up to Villanova. Well, they lost that game. That was their first loss of the year. Still, they were ranked number one, number two. And I met Joe Mullaney and Dave Gavitt, God rest their, their souls, and I met the team, Jimmy Walker, Mike Reardon, Jimmy Benedict, uh, Dexter Westbrook, and Coach Gavitt said, uh, he said, you play basketball? And I said, yeah, and the interesting thing, uh, Liz, is I played in a segregated, there was no integration of sports in the South in the 60s. And uh, he said, well, what school? They asked me all these things. And he said, well, I've, I've, I haven't heard anything. Well, they didn't because, you know, they just didn't write a lot of stuff about black athletes in any sport. And so uh, he said, uh, sent the manager up to his room, Coach Gavitt, gave me an application and said, 
if you're interested, send me this application. I sent the application. Two weeks later, I was playing hooky in the nurse's office. I got called to the to the main office. I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble now. He said, you have a phone call. It was Coach Gavitt. And he said, Andy, this is Dave Gavitt, and I'm calling on behalf of Joe Mullaney, and uh, we want to offer you a scholarship to play basketball for Providence College. And he said, uh, we're going to fly you up if you're willing and let you see the school, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how it started. Now, I think it's important to understand I had about 100 scholarship offers to universities because I was a, uh, what do they call it, the merit scholar. I took the merit exam. And so all these schools, but they were academic scholarships, all of the major universities in the country. And um, I had only five acad- uh, athletic scholarships and I only had really one to a major college and then once the other colleges Syracuse NYU who had a program then uh, Michigan U with uh, Cassie Russell and Oliver Darden those guys and uh, Stanford uh, they found out on the on the you know recruitment wire who was being recruited so I got uh, inquiries for them but I came to Providence College and I met uh, Dave and I met Joe and uh, Chris Clark and all of the, uh, Mr. Vin Cuddy, Cuddy, God rest all of those guys' souls. And uh, they were just so, my mother put it this way, he said, she said, if for no other reason, son, go to that school. Those people are filled with the milk of human kindness. The other thing was, they said, Andy, if you come here and you decide the day after you get here that you don't want to play basketball, your scholarship is good. So my dad, a few words, said, well, what are you going to think about? (laughs) And so... The rest is history. So I think you alluded a little bit to your your high school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, compare and contrast what it was like to come from you know, an a segregated- all-black high school, segregated high school, playing in a segregated league to come here? Well, I thought, I said, well, I'm sure they're going to room me with some other blacks, which was not the case. Uh, I was roomed with... Uh, two hockey players, one from Charlestown and w- one from Jamaica Plain. And so it was freshman year, and I didn't know any difference. I mean, I was here to play basketball. And I kept hearing Dr. Carter, God rest his soul, as I said, saying, you got to get them books. You got to get them books. So I had been an academic All-American in high school, and, of course, you know, the, I scored well on the merit exam. So it was that that kind of took my attention away from the fact that you're in an integrated society now. Mm. You know, my neighborhood, everything was segregated. And it was like, 
for some reason, I just wasn't in awe because the people were so nice, as my mother said. That everybody was filled with the milk of human kindness. And I found that to be true. Well, it feels like that, that family that you found when you were here mm-hmm. continues to this day. To I mean, this day. We're talking on the day of the MLK prayer breakfast where they honored the MLK Vision Award recipients. And you were joined not only by your wife and family, but also four of your friends from the class of mm-hmm. 1969. How did you meet them? And how did you remain connected after your days at PC? The main uh, mover and shaker for my nomination was my roommate, Mike Stapleton. And uh, he was from Syracuse, New York. And he told me years later that he had never known a black man in his life. He said, but our experience rooming together taught him how to deal with people of all races, creeds, and colors, nationalities, and religious persuasions. And it was the key thing that benefited him when he went into the military and began to lead men. And so Mike was one of those two? Mike was here today, yeah. And was he one of those two freshman roommates? Uh, Mike, no, we knew each other. We didn't room together until sophomore year. Okay, and uh, the other was, uh, he also supported me, Jerry Murphy. He was here on hockey scholarship, and he was from Maine. And so, uh, and the rest of those guys, we lived on the same floor, and, you know, and, and I'm just overwhelmed that that relationship we had, uh, I can truly say we didn't see color. We saw people, we saw each other, and, and it's remained that way 50 years later. You were playing on this integrated team mm-hmm. with, with Joe Mullaney. Mm-hmm. Can you share any highlights of your, your times on the team? Well, yeah, uh, they were all had to do with one of the, the greatest player uh, that Providence College has ever had, even though I just met uh, Hinton. or, or that, Dante Hinton. That broke... Well, he's number two. Uh, Jimmy Walker was number one in terms of uh, score, scoring, all-time scoring uh, champion here. And uh, that was kind of like playing with Walk. The Walk was like a dream come true. And it was like uh, I learned so much because I used to imitate everything he did. Now, I was never as good as Walker, but Coach Mullaney used to have me play him every day because teams used to play what we call a box and one. And they'd have four men boxed in a zone and their best defensive player playing walk. So I was the defensive player that played walk in our practices. And so I became a very good defensive player playing the best player in college basketball every day. And Chris is shaking his head. He's a former basketball manager, so I think this okay. is very familiar to him, this, right. this technique. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the single most. The other thing was playing for Dave Gavitt and playing for uh, Joe Mullaney. Uh, historic, we just took a picture outside of the the uh, bronze statue with them. 
and I sat down next to Dave. I said, I can't, I because Joe had both of us. So I sat down next to Dave and leaned in so it looked like Dave was still mentoring us. And and that was that was because I had read about uh Joe Mullane and the fame combination defense and all this stuff. And I was saying, Oh God, you know, it's like uh what am I going to do? Am I, am I going to make this team? Well, I've been recruited, but didn't mean I was going to, you know, I mean, it did mean I keep my scholarship, but to play was something else. And so uh, we played every major team in the 60s that was ranked top two. We played them all, and we beat them all except uh, – uh, Salt Lake was Salt Lake City, Utah, Utah State, and walked foul out of that game. So, but we beat them all. We lost a couple here and there, but so that was a thrill. One of those players you had played against was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, it's just it's so interesting to have you back here for MLK mm-hmm. Convocation Month because he was our speaker recently. You told me that. Oh, yeah. So, can you tell okay. us what that experience was like? Uh, one saying uh, says it all. We were told we were we played him one man behind him, who was Ray Johnson, our center, who was six eight, Kareem seven two, and we would drop down and put somebody in front of him. So we, we had somebody in front and behind. And that was our M.O. for, you couldn't stop him, but trying to contain him. And I went out to the corner to check Sidney Wicks, who was a transfer, and he became rookie of the year for Portland when he was drafted by the pros. And Sidney Wicks had the ball, and then he threw the ball up in the air, and I, I looked up, I said, where is he throwing this ball? to and I followed the path of the ball up near the rafters and then all of a sudden I see this hand come up out of nowhere and catch the ball bring it down take one step out towards the corner and the second step he was like 15 feet from the rim and shoot the famous sky hook I said, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. No slam dunks, no behind, and Ernie was a great passer, no behind the back, one bounce into the hole. Uh, That was the most amazing thing that I had ever seen a basketball player on any level do. 15-foot sky hook, and it was a sky hook. And you had a front row seat to that. <laughs> Back row, because I was down here and he was way up there. <laughs> but I did have a seat. <laughs> I'm curious what it was like for you to be a spectator at last night's Creighton game at the Amp. Well, being a former player uh, and being in the era where there was no three-point shot and ball possession one way or another on jump balls and, you know, contested plays. 
and being in the stands and watching those players. And the other thing was uh, Providence College having a head coach in Ed Cooley. I mean, I remember when Ed Cooley was a kid, I think he went to either Assumption or Stonehill. Stonehill. Okay, he was at Stonehill. And he lived the next street over from my wife's family over there in West Elmwood. So to see this little snotty-nosed kid come up and be what he is today is like that in and of itself. And last night's game was one of the best coached games that I've ever seen and one of the best played games, hotly contested all the way. And I just met uh, Carter outside, and uh, it was like, Man, I, I'm I'm just it's an honor to shake your hand because he made the key block last night in the overtime that turned the game our way. It was seesaw all the way, but that turned the game our way to the last buzzer. You mentioned your wife, who's a Providence native. How did the two of you meet? Ooh, <laughs> that's another story. But the short end of it was. Father Sicard, my wife, and I worked for Fleet National Bank. I was a commercial lending officer. Father Sicard was an auditor. Kenny was an auditor in all respect to Father. And my wife was a credit investigator, and she worked for me for credit investigation. Father Sicard was the auditor and everybody, when the auditors came in to, you know, view and assess your stuff in-house, everybody trembled, you know. But I said, hey, what's to be afraid of? You know, you want to know what you're doing. And so Father Sicard, Kenny Sicard, got a call, and I told him this today, got a call to the ministry, to, to the priesthood. And all the auditors are like, Kenny, you don't want to do that. You got a great career, blah, 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 blah. And he said no. And and he came back to Providence College and he gave his car to Leanne Brito, my wife. <laughs> now, we were not dating then. <laughs> she was dating another auditor, but that was how we go back. And today, well, actually last night, because we sat on his row and Leanne and, and he had a great reunion. Oh, that's amazing. And so what goes around comes around. <laughs> that, that's got to be the most Rhode Island story we've told on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. like, you know, yeah. if you could only have prefaced it by, we used to park at the place that used to be the Coca-Cola factory. That would, that would just seal the deal. <laughs> <laughs> mm, so not the, really. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your time after Providence College. Okay. Um, it seems astonishing that Pawtucket, mm -hmm did mm. not have any black high school teachers mm -hmm. until you arrived. Yeah. Um, what were your years in the classroom like? What brought you to that district? Well, uh, that was the time when, if you all remember the television show, Room 222, and you're too young, but uh, they had, it was about a high school and all of these students, and they had a black teacher. Okay, 
And the kids at Pawtucket kind of saw themselves and me as their own room two, two, two. And so it was a great time. And then coming out of PC and uh, my advisors there, uh, Mr. Tilo Margarita and Mr. Dan McKenna, who are also PC alum, uh, I was under their wing. And then all the kids, you know, they're still running. And look, I was 22. These Some of these kids that I was teaching were 18 years old. And so, you know, it was like, and they, ah, oh, Mr. Clary, Mr. Clary, Mr. They never called me Andy. They always gave me the respect. And I said, okay. And um, while I was teaching at Pawtucket, and Dr. Shea was the superintendent of the schools. He was a PC alum. And he said to me, he said, I want to take you through the ranks, and one day I'd like to see you become the superintendent of schools here. And it was his influence. There were, there were 1,500 applications for that position at now Shea, Pawtucket West, and there were 1,500 applications for like 10 jobs in the Pawtucket school system to teach high school. So I don't know if that's a bad thing or was he showing prejudice or due diligence, one or the other. But that's how I got there. I'm sure there's a lot of students in well, these I, classes who needed to see a face like yours. Excuse me. Uh, I didn't say I had student taught there. Aha. So that's that had gave me the inside track and then playing for PC, student teaching there and having two alums as my supervisors and, and mentors in the in the school, in the faculty, and then having the superintendent. And so I, I think it was a fair I don't think it was unfair that I was chosen. Okay. I mean... No, I'm, they if, saw your work in the classroom. If you put your resume anywhere in this country and it says BA, Masters, whatever, from Providence College, that puts you up here. I'm, I'm telling you. I mean, the reputation, the, the president of the bank that Kenny, Father Sicard, my wife and I worked for, he was a PC graduate, the president of the bank, Mr. John Cummings, the vice president of the bank of fleet, Mr. Henry Tingley. All of the bank <laughs> were PC grads. So, you know, and PCs, I mean, uh, Providence, and Rhode Island is the smallest state, and, and PC is the biggest university, and it only had a population then. Uh, there were, in my freshman class, there were 750 freshmen. Alumni Hall hold, held 3,300 people, and now we play before 14,000 plus. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. You have taught all your life. You've been in the classroom, mostly in higher education. Mm -hmm. um, 
what what was your motivation for education? What what prompted you to major in education in the first place? My mother has five had all of them are passed. My mother had four sisters and she was the fifth. And they were all educators. And I was homeschooled beginning at age two. And it was just something that I was always around. You know, our, our families were always teaching the kids, always teaching the kids. And then we would play school and we would teach the younger kids. So it was just a, a natural thing. The family business. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about your transition into ministry. I was curious how your path went from a classroom at Pawtucket West mm -hmm. to the pulpit. Well, it was certainly not what I thought. But fifth, the first thing is, when I was a freshman, uh, and I was in Father Robert Quinn's education psychology of education class, and he used to come in in his habits, you know, and and the uh, in his rosary and you know the garb, the priest garb, and I saw something in him that was beyond his outer garment, and the influence that he had on me. It was like a voice said to me, I want you to be a priest. And I was like, I'm a freshman. And I said, nah, I'm here to play basketball. I don't have time for that, you know. And so um, that was my first epiphany. Didn't pay it any attention, went on. Uh, did my four years here uh, at the teaching job. And in 1976, I uh, founded a environmental management firm that we did uh, secured research for the department, the federal department of defense. And we were now back to the Dr. Carter alum who introduced me to PC. I talked to him in 76, and we were just starting a business. Now, we were in Rhode Island, and he said, well, have you, you need to talk to my buddy. His buddy was Ed Brooke, Senator Ed Brooke from Massachusetts, first Massachusetts United States Senator, black Senator. We shot up to Ed Brooks' office, went in to see him. He sent us over to uh, Small Business Administration. He said, tell Tal Buckley, give you what you need. He didn't say what we want, he said what you need. They financed us, we went into business, we were the first 100% minority firm to do significant contracts with the Department of Defense. We were on the verge of signing a multi-million dollar contract with Hanscom Air Force Base up here in Massachusetts. And I should be happy because we'd been working hard. We'd given up everything to invest in the business. I was at home. I was single at home, sitting down and 
going to put on a steak and get a frosted mug of beer and just celebrate. And I got very depressed. Didn't know why. I said, why am I so depressed? And, and I just put my head down and I said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the words came back as clear as I'm talking to you. Preach my word. What, Lord? I'm getting ready to make history again in business. I said, uh, Lord, what would you have me to do? He said, preach my word. And from that, I came back to Providence College, entered their master's program, and, and concentrated in the three areas that you could get a degree in, uh, biblical studies, religious studies, and Christian education. And, uh, and I was going to convert from being a Baptist to being a priest, a Catholic priest. And I told Father Collins that, and he shared it with some of the other priests. And so they were so receptive and they were so encouraging. And um, I went all the way through the program. But then I didn't go to take the whatever they do to make you a priest because I wanted to have a family. And I, not regretfully, but I said, Father, I can't go this route. And with tears in my eyes, as now. And he said, that's okay. He said, whatever the Lord is calling you to do, do it. And so I closed my business a couple of years. The two were not related. I closed the business a couple of years later because politics changed. And uh, I was here during that time. And I was down to the last course, which was Hebrew. You had to take at least two languages. So I took Greek and Hebrew. And that was when uh, I made that decision. And so I became a licensed Baptist pastor, minister, and then I pastored a church on Hyannisport, Mass. And uh, for five years. And then I got a call again to come back home and pastor a church, a historic black church. Uh, it was founded in 1865. And uh, I came home, and uh, they elect in the Baptist, they vote to their autonomous bodies. They, you don't get sent there. God does send you. And uh, I was voted the pastor in 1990, uh, December 1991, March. I took the position, moved my family back to Newport News, Virginia. And I pastored there for 23 years. I retired in July of 2014. And here I am. 
And this is an amazing story because, I mean, this is another contrast from your, your upbringing. I mean, you, mm-hmm. I, we didn't talk about this. You weren't raised Catholic, so no. coming here must no. have been quite a transition as well. What was your faith life like before uh, and during Providence College? Well, see, in, in, in the South and maybe other places, you didn't go to church, Sunday school, come back in the afternoon to what they call Baptist Training Union, BTU. You, my father, used reverse psychology. He said, you don't have to go to church. You don't have to go to Sunday school. You don't have to go to BTU. But you're not doing anything else on Sunday. You're not riding your bike. You're not playing basketball. You're not doing anything. You're not watching television. It's your choice. So... I said, well, I can't do those things anyway, <laughs> you know, in the Baptist faith. But I said, okay. So I, I went to church, went to Sunday school, and um, I just stayed in. But that that time, I was a teenager. I didn't get baptized until I was 16 years old. Uh, and that time, during that time, I then I come to college, and I am introduced to these priests and nuns and professors and students that are filled with the milk of human kindness. I said, this is where the Lord wants me. So then fast forward, he calls me after that initial call, that epiphany when I was a freshman. And so then 1976, which is, you know, we do the math from 1965 to 1976, 76, that's 10 years. So I was doing whatever. Teaching, I coached at St. Rayfield's in Pawtucket. Head coach there for a time. And that's kind of like how the, it, it wasn't like I'm here and then I'm there, I'm Baptist and I'm Catholic. No, I'm not Catholic. Uh, I want to go here. It wasn't like, it was, it was, it may sound like a, a choppy back and forth, but it was a natural progression. Natural progression, as I see it, you know. I mean, it seems like an, an evolution for your, yeah. your your faith life, but it, it seems interesting to think about it as um, the inspiration of the Dominican priest here. Absolutely. The inspiration of the priest and the education. I said that in the in the, At awards. the breakfast, yeah. yeah, the education, I, I, bar none, bar none, and particularly with my colleagues, who most of which are black, and when I was ordained by a black, uh, and I was ordained by a a New England uh, conference of black pastors. (laughs) Typically, that's what they wanted to be known as, black pastors. And the first thing they said to me, they said, well, Clary, you don't have enough black theology. Well, I wasn't one to just sit back. I said, well, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there is a color differentiation. I do see that God is no respecter of persons. And I hear Paul saying, whether you are 
Gentile, Jew, slave or free, Jew, Greek, he's no respecter of persons. And so they kind of backed off me from that. <laughs> but they did hold me on my feet for three hours in an oral examination. Well, that was like the story of uh, Bruh Rabbit and Bro Bear and Bro Fox. And he said, please don't throw me in the, lion, in, in the briar patch. And they threw him in the briar patch. And he ran away and said, I was born and bred in the briar patch. What they did on my feet for three hours, that's what I was trained to do here in my exams, undergraduate and graduate. And the, and the rationale was, if you go off the question, we can bring you back. So I was like, you guys, you know, give me a glass of water and let's keep on going. So, and, and at my ordination, the, the uh, catechizer, they call it the catechizer, of, of my ordination said to the congregation that this man has gone through the most grueling ordination examination that we've ever had. And it sounds like you came out smiling. Piece of cake. Because of Providence College and my educational preparation. Among the many things you taught um, in all of your education experiences, mm -hmm. your pastoral counseling was one that mm -hmm. was key. And you were later recognized in your career for the counseling you did with mm -hmm. inner city youth and their families. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that work with us and kind of your approach to counseling? Well, I, I take my lead from the WWJD. What would Jesus do? And so, in a word, he said, love ye one another. So, and I said this to uh, Father Sakar today, that he was the embodiment of what I had seen myself as being, not a president, but a priest. And I said, and I love you for that. I said, and I know that when they were telling you at the bank, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do that? I said, I know you did this, Kenny, because of your compassion for the ministry, your compassion for the service with God as your chief CEO. And that's how I uh, led people. Jesus led people from the front. You cannot lead sheep like cattle. You can't drive them from behind. You have to get in front. He said himself, I don't want to get too theological. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so that's how I try to exemplify my faith and to bring help by leading people and not trying to tell them go over here or go there and then I sit back and you bring me the results. I lead from example. Andy Clary, you've, you've spent so much of your life in service and, and not just in service 
to ministry, but also an elective office. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about your government work and what mm-hmm. motivated you and inspired you there? Well, quickly, uh, I saw that we needed some representat- representation and some leadership in the particular district of Hampton. It's 10 districts. And uh, the, the people were not being served. There was a cloistered group of administrators and elected officials that were leading the various districts. And my church was in District 7, I'm sorry, District 8, 7 and 8. And I was asked to run. And so I had a good, at one time my church had like 2,000 parishioners. And so that's 2,000 votes. And so I was asked to run for that particular position. I was elected by popular vote. I served in that position. Then I was asked to run for school board uh, and by the powers that be. And I did run, and I was elected to the school board. Then I was asked if I would consider an appointment to the city council, which is the city council runs the city. And I said, uh, okay. And so they had 30 some applicants that went before city council and I was selected and I was appointed to city council. I served city council for four years. So that was my political. Prior to that in in Rhode Island, I was a, a lobbyist for um, for the Urban League, hmm. and we lobbied the state legislature. But that must have been a huge commitment of time in addition to your ministerial duties. Yeah, um, but I always had a formula, God first, family second, because God gave me the family, and then everything else third. And it, it worked out. Um, just thinking back to your Providence College experience, and you've, you've threaded that needle so many times in showing how your PC experience um, mm-hmm. impacted your path mm-hmm. afterward. I'm curious if there were any other activities or experiences that really stand out in your mind as having helped shape your career. The influence of the priest and the lay teachers and administrators here and particular not to discredit in any way Coach Mullaney but Dave Gavitt was as far as basketball was concerned uh, a mentor for me par excellence and after basketball and I was working in the bank with Father Sicard and, and my wife. Uh, he came to me and said, you don't want to go back in to athletics. That's not for you. I was in business, and he connected me with all the professional athletes from the uh, New England Patriots, the Boston Celtics, and the Bruins. And I was an investment banker. 
And so we, he introduced me to the president of the Players Association, Quinn Buckner at that time, and uh, we set up investment plans. Now, Joey Hassett, uh, who's, uh, who played for um, Portland, I think he was drafted for, no, uh, Portland, let's say Portland, and he's from, my, uh, from here. He went to LaSalle, and uh, he was in that office. So he had an inroads to sports, professional sports. And so ha me having rubbed elbows and played with these individuals, so that was how Dave then guided me after basketball. So in basketball, he instilled in me the confidence that this little guy from Newport News, Virginia, playing in a segregated league with no press and no, you know, nothing really substantial to say in the bigger picture of high school recruiting. And I came here and he gave me the confidence that I could compete at a high level at Providence College. So, Andy Claire, could you tell us, you know, a little bit about your motivation for all these years of service? My faith. My faith. And, and my faith was tested like never before when my daughter was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and in need of a bone marrow transplant. This was in August 10th, 2018. I was teaching at uh, Canaan Seminary. I dropped everything when we got the call. And my life and my wife's life changed. I was in Hampton. I was retired. I went to Washington, D.C., and I moved into my daughter's apartment, and she was able, which made a, made a big financial difference, she was able to be an outpatient at Johns Hopkins. And I used to take her to her treatments seven days a week. She lived in Washington, and we drove to Baltimore every day, seven days a week, from October, I'm sorry, from August, say, 21st, the 21st is, is the magic number, to her bone marrow transplant in December the 21st of the same year, 2018, and my son, was the bone marrow donor. And in February of 2019, she rang the bell at Johns Hopkins and they said, you are all Robert, meaning her whole DNA and everything was now her brother. That it never was an instance of rejection, never. And to this day right here where I'm talking to you, she's been cancer free. 
And it was my, not my prayers, but what God did with the prayer. And I asked him to heal my daughter. The doctors, Liz, can operate and they can medicate, they can manipulate, they can do therapy, all of that. But it's God who heals. And he answered my prayer. He answered my prayer. It's God that makes the medicine work. And he answered my prayer. So when anybody asks me, how are you and your family? I say, my daughter's four years cancer-free. That's how our family's doing. Because nothing else is important. Once you have a child or a father or a mother or a loved one that is stricken with some maybe curable and maybe incurable disease or condition, and God works his miracles. And that was, I always had faith, but greater faith did I get from that. And if I may, faith is the substance of, this is the Bible talking now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And I hope for the best. And the evidence of things yet not seen. I've seen the evidence. I mean, I feel like there's there's two blessings to celebrate there. I mean, the the remission for your daughter and the healing, but the gift of your your son to be able to, to tell give, me about it to give of himself this yes. way. I mean, yes, yes. So don't tell me about faith. I mean, you have your faith, and I don't try to tell anybody about. Well, you should believe me. I don't tell them that. I tell them my story. I tell them my story. Well, Andy Claire, it's been so wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. You're welcome. Subscribe to the Providence College Podcast in all usual places, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as your smart speaker. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening, and go Friars. <laughs>